As we dig in here to verse 1 in chapter 2, remember that the Apostle Paul is writing to a church uh, that's in a very difficult place for people to live. He's writing to a church that's got some significant problems. And one of those problems is the plethora of teachers that are teaching false doctrine. And those teachers are not always easy to distinguish because they're intellectual, they're likable, they're great orators, they have a great command of the language, um, they're very gifted speakers, but they're not speaking the truth. And so the apostle now is going to, to lead us in this uh, going deeper as we dig into the Word of God. And, and I want to strongly suggest to you tonight that as you read these words, imagine yourself listening in on the Apostle Paul as he's dealing maybe almost in a collegiate environment with people who are very intelligent, extremely gifted, and thereby already think they know the answer to everything. Kind of sounds like our world, Amen. Uh, most people, when you talk to them about God, they already have their opinions. And so the Apostle Paul is right in the midst of that type of situation. And so would you join me in prayer? And we'll ask God to minister to us through his word. Father, we thank you for your word and for the power it has to transform our lives and change us. And Lord, we too uh, still live in an upside-down world. Lord, it was upside-down for the Apostle Paul and for the disciples Lord, the apostles, the early church, and it remains so in so many ways very similarly for us. And so we pray that you'd instruct us as we read your word, Lord, we'll be empowered to be your disciples in this upside-down world. Help us to turn it right side up for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, uh, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, and focus in on the word wisdom, because you're going to see it a number of times here. It really is the focus, but we'll define that in a moment and really look at what wisdom actually is, speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And herein is the real rub for a lot of people when they're dealing with the good news of the gospel. Just like the church at Corinth, they begin to add things to it. And in essence, those things that they added to it were tests of spirituality, tests of biblical knowledge, tests whereby someone could be judged to be of the faith or not of the faith. They added things to the gospel that were not only not found in Scripture, because Scripture wasn't authored yet, uh, but they were tests that were, in essence, man-made criteria whereby a human being could judge as to whether someone was of the faith or not of the faith. And I would suggest to you that we do the same thing in our world today. Sometimes people will come to me and they will talk about maybe a level of sinfulness or sinlessness. Or they'll talk about you know, whether someone owns a King James Bible or they read from the NIV. Or they'll talk to me about which brand of Christianity is their favorite brand of Christianity. Maybe they come from a denominational background, and so they'll say, well, you know, I know the Baptists are saved, but I'm not so sure about the Episcopalians. And so there will be criteria that human beings have that they judge, in essence, maybe a style of worship, perhaps whether it seems orthodox 
uh, in its practice. We call that orthopraxy. In other words, someone that, you know, it really looks like church. There are people that believe that you you all sitting here tonight are not necessarily believers because some of you are wearing T-shirts to church. I know. Horrors. These guys were wearing tunics, okay? The reason I'm saying that is we have to be careful by which standard we measure people who claim to be believers. We need to measure people by the truth and by the truth alone and by the gospel alone. So when someone comes to me, and I just had this experience this week, and they will say, well, what defines someone who is a believer? What defines someone who is a believer is they have put their soul faith, their soul trust, their soul hope in the one true king, our Lord Jesus, who died on Calvary's cross, gave his life a ransom for your sin, paid the debt for your sin, and thereby you are now forgiven of that sin. That sin is gone as far as God's concerned. It has been forgiven, so you are the inheritor of the kingdom of God by the grace of God. It doesn't matter what church you go to. And I'm going to say some things. I want to be very clear here. It does not depend on you understanding the full end times timeline. It does not depend on you understanding the fullness of the creation so far as we have it discussed in Scripture. It depends on Jesus Christ alone, period. And so the Apostle Paul says that here very, very, very clearly. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Very important that we leave the gospel alone. That we make that main thing the main thing. Because that's the wisdom of God. Because everyone can believe and be saved. But not everyone can understand creation science. Not everyone can understand the deeper tenets of eschatology, the study of last days or end time things. Not not everybody's going to get all those little subtleties. They're important, by the way. One could even say that for your growth, they might even be necessary for you to go from a baby to a, a, a walker or a crawler. But the one thing is necessary for your salvation is faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so the Apostle Paul says, this is the wisdom of God. This is God's incredible wisdom. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Now we don't know a whole lot about the Apostle Paul, but what we do know is he was not horribly tall. He was not very good looking. He had some eye issues, we believe. And he was not a great orator. He was not all that gifted a public speaker, if you will. Uh, he would not be found, you know, late night on television uh, teaching you how to make money selling real estate and getting you to buy tennis shoes if you live in Alaska. He was not that kind of guy. He didn't have the the great persuasive ability to convince people of truth by his use of the language of the culture. He he came, in fact, in fear. 
Remember, he's a Jew speaking to Gentiles. He's in a Greek culture, but he came from a Jewish culture. So he is a little bit disadvantaged in that regard. You will be disadvantaged in your sharing of the gospel as well. Because God's not always going to send you to people who are just like you. He may well send you to people who are very much not like you. And so notice how this continues now. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so he's beginning to, to hone in on the deeper things of God. The deeper things of God are not inherently simply learned. It's not just head knowledge, in other words. It's not that if you sit around and study long enough that you're going to have all of the power that God wants to give you. There is a far greater power source available to the church, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, the believer. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, look, it's not because people can really, really, really communicate things. It's because the Holy Spirit is really, really, really powerful, and the Holy Spirit is capable of convincing your heart and your mind and giving you the wisdom that does not come from men but comes only from God, the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, and here's where it kind of shifts a little bit and now goes to those people whom we would call maybe senior saints, those who have walked with the Lord for a while, those that do know their Bibles, those that might be able to share that truth, you you see, when those people begin to speak, they speak the wisdom of God because they've been with God. And so they can speak those to more mature believers because spiritual things are spiritually appraised, they're discerned by someone who also is walking in the Spirit. And so when people who know the Lord get together and talk, they generally talk about the deeper things of God. When you have believers and unbelievers, or you have believers who are baby Christians talking with people who are unbelievers, the conversation is fairly elementary at that point in time. So he's saying, look, you spiritually mature people need to make sure that you live out, talk out, walk out your faith so that you can help other people grow. Yet not to the wisdom of this age, or to the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. If you've ever had this experience, you'll know exactly what I'm going to talk about next. When you sit down and talk about the deep things of God with somebody who does not know God, who maybe is an atheist or an agnostic, or maybe they just plain don't want to hear about spiritual things, they think you are pretty much nuts. It's like, you talk to God? Yes, I talk to God. Really? What does he say? You'll get all kinds of things said to you. Because when you speak of the wisdom of God to people who do not know the Lord, they do not know what you're talking about. You are, in effect, speaking a foreign language to them. So don't be surprised when you say, well, you know, I'm going to a Bible study, and they're going, you're doing what? Well, we we were praising the Lord today in church. And they go, you were, huh? They don't get it. 
you're speaking the wisdom of God to someone who does not yet possess the ability to discern the things of God. So it's a foreign language to them. They, they might be curious. They might even desire to see what it's all about. And that's a great thing. Invite them to church and let them hear the word of the Lord and let them begin to experience those things. But they're not going to instantaneously understand the things that you understand the way you understand them. Because that power came from God. The ability to understand it came from God. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the discerner of the intents of the heart of man. The Holy Spirit is the illuminator of all things godly. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers the the very thought processes that we think. And, And so don't be surprised when the rulers of this age haven't got a clue. Sometimes one of the things that frustrates me the most is when I hear politicians try and speak in biblical terms. It's very clear they do not have a clue about what they are talking. But they quote some Bible verses. They're normally taken completely out of context. And so you can see the flip side of this. When you only have the wisdom of the world, you cannot speak the things of God. What ultimately happens is you back yourself into some type of spiritual conundrum or corner. And all of a sudden, you're, you're quoting you know, chapter and verse to mean something it does not mean. So both directions are true. An unbeliever does not speak for God, and a believer does speak for God, and an unbeliever is not necessarily going to understand all those things. Save the gospel. That's why the people who don't know the Lord stick with the gospel. Till they get past the gospel, till they receive the gospel, till they know the Lord, the rest of the stuff is pretty much Hebrew and Greek. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. You know, when you begin to understand the things of God and you speak the things of God, all of a sudden it's like, wow, God's really smart. He actually knew what he was doing. As we'll take a journey through some of the Old Testament scriptures that prophesy of the coming Messiah, you're going to see when God began to write about the Messiah who would come, he was extremely accurate. And he did so with perfection in all that he spoke regarding the coming king. Human beings could not have done that. Human beings still can't do that. Even with computers, we're not as accurate as God has been with his word. People still make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. And so the wisdom that is before us in God's word was ordained before the ages for our glory. Which none of the rulers of this age knew. For if they had known, notice this. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What a beautiful tie-in this is to the Easter message. Imagine for a second... And this is one of the proofs that the Bible is true. If the Sanhedrin had had any inkling whatsoever that Jesus Christ was truly God's son, do you think they would have crucified him? The answer is no, because they were helping exactly what God wanted to have happen come to pass. They would have let him go. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
People often take this passage in the negative. Take it in the positive. If they had known who Jesus was, do you think they would have crucified him at all? The answer is no, because that was one of the signs he was the Messiah. Do you think they would have lifted him up on the tree? The answer is no, because that's one of the signs he was the Messiah. Do you think they would have shaken their heads at him? No, that was one of the signs that he was the Messiah. You see, if they'd actually known the wisdom of God, they would have not done what they did. But the fact is, they didn't know it. And so they did do, and in doing so, they actually helped prove that Jesus Christ was exactly who he claimed to be. Proving that Jesus was Messiah. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Anybody had that, the experience in this room that as you grow in Christ, you find out there's almost unlimited understanding that comes your way about who Jesus is, who God is, what he desires for us, what he wants to do through us. Anybody else in the room stunned at what the Lord does in our lives? I am. Man, my, my life has been an endless string of God doing things that I never thought he could do. Using me in ways that I never thought would. How's God going to do that? Not a chance. My eyes had not seen. My ear had not heard. Never entered into the heart of this man the good things that God would do. And I haven't begun to see them all yet. That's the crazy part. That's the wild part. That's the part that I'm waiting for. It's like, wow, what's next, God? You're doing some amazing things here on this earth. I can't wait to see what you conjure up in heaven. Amen? But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. Searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. And so the focus here on wisdom. Webster kind of defines this, and it's interesting, man. If you look up the word wisdom... You're, you're going to find all kinds of definitions. The ability to discern inner qualities or relationships. Uh, it, it's insight. And all of these, these things that I have listed for you here, uh, it, some of it's just generally accepted understanding or belief. It's kind of like it's associated with your judgment, those types of things. It, Wikipedia says this, wisdom or sapience, which is a wonderful word, so write that one down, sapience. You can freak people out. It's a word they'll never understand. It's just wisdom. It's the ability to think and act using knowledge, experience, understanding, common sense, insight, especially in a mature or utilitarian manner. It thereby appears to be a consensus of experiential self-knowledge, non-attachment to other things, and virtues such as ethics and benevolence. It's like, what? It's like, now what is wisdom? What is the Lord trying to tell us here as he uses this word over and over and over again? If you were to talk to a Greek, they would generally use the word Sophia. And, and in the Greek mindset, uh, it, it's simply practical intelligence put into, uh, into action. And so if you boil all these things down, the, the Jeff Gill version uh, is this. It's the ability to use all accumulated knowledge correctly. 
It's kind of similar to what Charles Spurgeon said, but it is not just knowledge itself. It's to take knowledge and actually accomplish something with it. It's actually the outworking, if you will, uh, of knowledge that you have. Things that you know become things that you do, and things that you do become things that should be done in a certain way because that's the wise way to do it. Associated with it is the word prudence. In other words, it's the right way to function. And so God focuses in on spiritual wisdom, godly wisdom. It's basically wisdom on steroids. It's like if you could hop up your wisdom that you might have because maybe you spent a lot of time in a specific field of study. Generally, when you go to college, you specialize in some field. Uh, you get a degree in that particular field of study. Maybe it'd be engineering or law or ethics or some kind of, you know, maybe even sports medicine or whatever. You will spend uh, part of your time on general education, and then you will specialize part of your educational time in things that are related to that subject matter. And the more you accumulate that knowledge, the hope is, here's the hope, you'll actually be able to get a job right? In order to get a job, you don't just need knowledge, you need wisdom, because knowledge alone will not get you very far. Because you can tell people all day long how to do something, but unless you can do something, you're not much good to anybody. That's why getting a degree, though a wonderful thing, does not necessarily make you an employable person. You need to take that wisdom and be able to do something with it. So the Apostle Paul is actually talking to us about this this wisdom that we should have that comes from God. And and the Corinthians were confusing it with a lot of other things. They, They were studying their brains out. They were, you know, listening to this teacher and that teacher. And boy, we live in a world where this is even a greater temptation to us. I can't tell you how many times people say, well, did you listen to this podcast or listen to that podcast or watch this TED video or do this thing or did you read this book or did you go here, did you go there, did you see this guy, did you talk to this lady? If you just got all these things and you'd finally be really spiritually mature. Can I tell you that spiritual maturity actually comes from God? It doesn't come from people. God can still speak through donkeys and speak through rocks. Um, I'm proof of that. (laughs) Yeah, God's word actually speaks for itself. And so that spiritual wisdom, that spiritual maturity actually comes from God via the Holy Spirit. It's not a message that I make up. These words were God's words. He wrote them by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to a group of people. And the reason they are still true today is they weren't the words of Paul. They're the words of God. Paul was simply the human author. And even in Paul's case, he most likely actually dictated these words and somebody else actually wrote them down. So the word of God does not come to you by simply studying. It's a different kind of spirituality. And so in that sense, Paul's talking about this deep spiritual understanding or knowledge. 
And you can kind of look at it. I don't know how many of you have ever been fascinated with blue holes, but uh, there are a number of places on the globe. The Bahamas is one. Off the coast of Belize is another. Uh, but they're basically giant sinkholes that, that filled in with ocean water. And as you look at them, you can put a boat out over them and it looks like the seafloor is right there, but it could be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet below the bottom of your boat, even though the shore just 20 feet away from you, the seafloor is maybe only 20 or 30 feet deep, and all of a sudden, it just goes into an abyss. The Word of God is like a blue hole. It is bottomless. And no matter what you did, you could not get down to the bottom of the Word of God. No matter what I do, no matter how long I study, and I've shared this with you previously, you know, Easter and Christmas are are like, for pastors, the most wonderful time and the most troubling time. Because the whole Bible is not Easter and Christmas. And so every year you come back to a handful of passages about a specific event that happened 2,000 years ago, and you're trying to come at it in some new way, some new direction, some way to communicate that same truth in a different manner. Can I tell you something? Every year the Lord comes through. There's some new thing I'm studying. I'm going, man, I never saw that before. That's new news to me. I don't even know how many times I've studied John chapter 19. I can't even remember. No, I can't count them. And here's, the, here's an Easter passage. I'm like, wow, I never saw that before. That's the wisdom of God. That's the power of God that works in us. Paul's explaining these things. He, he's, he's saying, be careful. Hear me well. Be careful to be a follower of of Jesus and not a follower of a person. People are good. People can be very useful in our lives. But we follow the Lord. The power lies in the message of Jesus Christ. That's where the power is, empowered by the Holy Spirit. There are some gospel lessons in this passage Sometimes our, our confidence comes from our methods. I will tell you, I am very methodical about how I study. I study pretty much the same way for every message, though I do not study the same passage. I kind of have a way that I do things. And so when you look at my notes, they're going to look very similar week to week, but I can tell you inside of them are all kinds of things that were not in the one previous because the, the power is not in the methodology of how I studied. The power is in the Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And without the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God, there's no power in this messenger. None. If you come to hear me just bloviate and talk, then you're getting nothing out of it that's going to do you any good prayerfully, what's going to happen is I'm going to illuminate the scriptures in such a way that something sticks in your mind because the Holy Spirit of God is going to take that and by the Spirit of God take truth and transmit it to you in a way that you can understand it and it's going to be useful to you at a later date. It's going to be the wisdom of God. 
not the wisdom of Jeff. I, I always tell people, I said, you know, being a Bible teacher is very much like using a coloring book. When you use a coloring book, the drawing is already there. Amen? You don't draw the outlines. All you do is fill in the colors. All you do is the highlights. It's the same for teaching the Bible. The picture's there. All a pastor does is highlight it. Draw some color. Make some illustration. Give you a way to understand those things. And so Paul's saying, make sure that you're following Jesus, his word, by the Spirit, and not just your favorite teacher. Your confidence should be in the gospel message itself. A second thing is that it's not based on skill or charisma. You know, I I prayerfully hope that most pastors would think about when they share that they're trying to communicate to people, and those people are not the same, uh, some people will, would say, well, you know, there was, you said this first service, but you didn't say it second service. And I usually will say something like, we're all the same people at second service? And they'll go, well, no. So you don't think that the Holy Spirit might say something different to the other people who are not there at first service, but were there at second service? You know, if it's exactly the same, I'm going to tell you, it probably was not totally from the Lord. It could still be useful, it could still be good, but there are going to be a whole bunch of different people at those three services, and every once in a while, though the basic message is the same message, the Holy Spirit has something for that person three rows from the back in that corner. I'm not pointing at you. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? Because the power is in the Holy Spirit making the message alive. It's not just in some person like myself delivering it. It's not just charisma. And a third thing, Paul uses and continues to use throughout Scripture the KISS principle. Keep it simple, silly. There's another word that's usually used, but keep it simple, silly. Just keep it simple. Keep it simple. The gospel message transforms lives. And if you give people the gospel, their life will be transformed and then God can work out the rest of the details. And in essence, it it leads us to this power that's found in essence in the human weakness. So Paul draws attention in this passage to his own human weakness. Paul is literally drawing attention to his own inabilities. I love that. Because no matter how much you study, no matter how much you prepare, no matter how much you think you're ready, not only are you not ever prepared enough and not are you not ready, something always happens. The enemy throws some new twist or turn, and if it's not a work of the Holy Spirit, you'll always come up deficient. So our own human weaknesses in the hand of the Lord can become a tool that he can use. But if all you're trying to do is show people how strong you are, how impenetrable you are in the Lord, then chances are you're going to miss being used in the area of weakness. I have human weaknesses. And there are times I'm sitting there, it's like, Lord, could I just be like that guy? I remember I was sitting... I followed Pastor Chuck one time at a conference up at Twin Peaks. That is like not even fair. 
because Pastor Chuck could get up and, and hum a nursery rhyme and people would get saved and have an epiphany before the Lord. It's like it didn't matter what he said. It was just like he could tell some story that he's told 40 times and 15 more people would like want to go to Bible college. And so I'm following Pastor Chuck and I'm going, Lord, don't let me look like an idiot. So what do I do? I walk up to the pulpit, I put my notes down, proceed to knock my Bible off onto the floor. I bend over and I hit my head on the pulpit. <laughs> like, Ugh. Chuck looks up and he goes, oh, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> it wasn't funny, it hurt. It's like, you don't even have any compassion. What is wrong with you? But he knew that that was the Lord's way of kind of breaking. It's like, how it can't go much worse than that to start. And so all of a sudden, it's like, I was kind of loose then. It's like, oh, I'll just teach now. But I was following. I'm like, I can't teach after Chuck. It was just, it was hilarious because all of a sudden, here's my weakness exposed for everybody. And okay, now I can just be used of the Lord. Let God use your weaknesses. Doesn't mean you should seek to be not good either, by the way. Just, let, just let's clarify that. Doesn't mean you have to be poor at everything. It doesn't mean you have to self-deprecate all the time. Doesn't mean you need to, you know, well, I'm just a poor tool in the tool shed. <laughs> you know, sometimes God uses it. No, it's not that way either. It's just recognize that God does not need powerful vessels through whom he works. He needs someone who's available and will stay out of his way. Just open your mouth and speak when the Lord tells you to speak. Be studied. Be prepared. You know, absolutely do the things that are necessary to be at your very best. But you do not have to be a highly paid motivational speaker. God can absolutely use anyone who's willing and so it kind of brings to mind what kind of power is it that he's talking about. Notice verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When I think of this, having taught Bible college, I, I, as I think on these things, there's all kinds of wonderful study helps out there. I mean, incredibly wonderful things. And we now live in, in the age of technological wonder and personal computers. When I first became a pastor, nobody except very rich people actually owned laptops. You didn't have them. Very few people had copies of Bible study software. Most everyone still took out volumes of books. It's the reason I have all the books I have. It's the reason I don't buy as many books as I used to is that I can go online, I can get them from Amazon, and they're delivered to me in 12 seconds. It's like, I want that book right now. It's like, there it is. But I, I remember sitting there thinking, it's like, man, I wish somebody would show me how to use all this stuff. And so here come, you know, these pastors that, you know, well, I got the first copy of this Bible study software or that Bible. At the time, we had, we had Bible Explorer and we had Logos and we had Quick Verse and, and a couple of others. 
And now you can get on, you can just go, it's free. You can go online, you can study your brains out all day long and have all kinds of things. And the reason I'm saying what I'm saying is, is we kind of ask ourselves, well, what kind of power is it? Well, is it the power of just having a whole bunch of tools at your fingertips? Well, we have more tools available today than ever. But that's not it. Matter of fact, I've actually watched people get worse at communicating God's word because they have too many tools and not enough Holy Spirit. There's too much up here and not much in here. There's a lot of head knowledge, but very little heart knowledge. And actually, the Holy Spirit's not even in it. It's just quote after quote after quote. It's Tim Keller said this, and Furtick said this, and this guy said that, and that guy said that. And you know, it's just like quote after quote after quote after quote, and there's no Jesus in it. There's no Bible in it. It's about the Bible. It's about Jesus. It's the power of God. Paul's not pushing his own book. He's not pushing a commentary series. He's not pushing a computer program. He's pushing the Lord Jesus. By the word. It wasn't a school. It wasn't a program. It was not some impressive lineage that he had. And he had a lineage spiritually. Make no mistake about it. He was a Pharisee of a Pharisee. He knew what you and I would call the Old Testament very, very, very well. He was a well-studied biblical scholar in that sense. So, so don't misunderstand and take the other way. Well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm not going to study at all. Because I've watched young pastors especially do that as well. Well, I'm just letting the Spirit lead, man. No, you're actually letting the devil get in here right now. Because you didn't study. You didn't spend any time with the Lord. You didn't spend any time in the Word. You didn't come with any notes. And I'm not actually picking on people. I'm just simply saying, neither extreme is good. Without the power of the Holy Spirit empowering the Word itself and the Gospel itself, you have a hollow message to deliver. That's why we're studying a passage of the Bible right now. Hopefully illuminating what it says. The power that's talked about here is the same power that you find there in Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. Amen? That's the Holy Spirit's power. That is dunamis. That is dunamai. That is a type of power that does not come from simple assemblages of certain facts. Sometimes people will say, well, you should write a book on, you know, some of these things. They go, well, there's so many books on it already. I don't know that there's another book that's necessary. We need more people to communicate what there is already here as truth. We need people to actually speak forth what we already have, which is the gospel. There's an interesting thing. Actually, Connie and I were talking about this a little bit this morning before I came into the office. You know, when you start reading the old guys... When you read the Adam Clarks or the Kyle and Deletch, some of these commentators that have been around, or Spurgeon, you, you, you go back to Whitcliffe. You know, strange thing, what they wrote is pretty much what the new guys write too. It looks a little different, 
may be illustrated in a different way, but the central truth of what God intended to say is still there. It's not about the power of man, it's about the power of God. It means going deeper to find that new power source that's available to anyone who asks. There could be sitting in this room a slew of pastors, Bible teachers, people that can be used to the Lord in the mission field to preach powerfully the word of God. We were down in Brazil. I bumped into this little, I mean, this gal was about, I don't know, she wasn't five feet tall, I know that. But she had gone to one Bible class at a, at a fairly questionable Bible college. But in doing so, what had happened to her is she got lit on fire. And so she started this ministry to children who lived on the edge of the dump. And by the time it was all said and done, the government saw what she was doing, and they actually built her a church. And as she built this church, or had this church built for her, ultimately she ends up starting, in essence, this incredible orphanage and all these things, all because she was simply faithful to what she did know was that those kids were lost and they needed Jesus. She preached Jesus, they got saved, and then all of a sudden they needed a place. So don't miss the simplicity of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings people to salvation and then God can do what he wants with them. In that sense, the plan, the power, the wisdom... Uh, is not of this world. It came from God himself. He's the one that authored it. He's the one that is really teaching. You know, so often people will confuse biblical teaching with some kind of philosophy. In other words, all of a sudden they're thinking about, well, you know, I think that's just a philosophical statement. No. The word of God is truth. And so it's the sharing of truth, which is very different than philosophy. Philosophy is a way for you to relate to or understand some train of thought or knowledge. And so philosophically, when you think about things, you can have all kinds of different spins on this exact same subject. You know, we could sit here and philosophize about the stars in space. And we could come up with, well, I think they're they're just little tiny things and they're fairly close to Earth. So philosophically, you think that the stars are only 200 feet up in the sky. Philosophically, I believe there's a big God and a big universe, and I think there's actually billions of light years of space out there. That the truth is that there is billions of miles of space out there, but philosophically, you can look at the evidence, you can come up with a couple of different ways to think on it. Paul wasn't preaching a philosophy. He was preaching the truth. He's saying, look, This is how God intends to save people. And that didn't make any sense to them. Notice verse 6. However, we speak with wisdom among those who are mature, and yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Paul was going to have his debaters. Paul was going to have those who would disagree with him. Paul was going to have people that are going to come alongside and say, well, we don't believe that. We believe this. We believe that the Greek gods live on Mount Olympus. It's right up there. It's just up the coast. We can see it on a good, clear day, and we think you're nuts. Have you seen a giant colossus of roads out there in the harbor? We think that's God. 
you see, that's a philosophical way of understanding God. But it was going to come up insufficient. It was the rulers of this age. Because now you and I would look at some statue that stands over a harbor and go, there's no way in the world that's God. But they believe it had power. We're fighting the gods of this age. You know who those gods are today? Money and power, sexuality, politics, globalism. There's all kinds of people that are sitting around debating their God is actually wealth. Our God came to this earth in human flesh and died on Calvary's cross so that men could be saved and have a right relationship with God the Father. People go, what does that have to do with making me wealthy? How's that going to fix my sexuality? What's that going to do for me as far as a degree program? Ultimately, God enhances all of those things that you have need of because he is the supplier of all those things you have need of. But to the mind who's perishing, they're like, what do I need God for? What do I need your God for? Because you can't guarantee me he's going to make me wealthy. You can't guarantee me he's going to do these things for me. You see, they wanted a God of their own making. And so the plan, the power, the wisdom that's being spoken of here was the plan that God put into place before he ever created the world. Exactly as Ephesians chapter 1 says. So in God's wisdom, he doesn't just make everybody's problems go away. He takes care of a far greater issue in our lives. And that is every last person in this room is a sinner. And because we are sinners, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every last one of us, that means we are either going to have to pay for our own sins or we're going to have to let God pay for them. So in God's tremendous wisdom, he says, I will send my own son to this world so that the world through him can be saved. I will have him pay the price for your sins. You need only believe that he has done so. You see, that's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of man is, well, unless you can figure these things out on your own, unless you can do it yourself, unless there's some religious way for you to relate to God or offer some kind of sacrifice or some kind of service, you can't be right with God. No, you can be right with God by simply confessing your sin and believing on Jesus Christ's name, who he is and what he did, and you will be saved. That's the wisdom of God. That's God's plan. It was a simple plan. But people hear that plan, wow, you know, I want some religion to go along with this. So God's original plan was silly people with a simple message. Amen? You see it? Silly people, simple message. That's the deeper truth. The deeper truth is silly people and a simple message. Now we have lots of complex ways to be able to share that message. We use technology to share that message. We use incredible worship teams to bring us close to the presence of God to kind of clear our mind of the junk of the week and the day. 
But the bottom line is the truth is very, very simple. Christ's cross. God revealed all of that. Can you imagine? That's uh, one of the reasons I, uh, Easter is my favorite. Some people say, well, I like Christmas, but no, I like Easter. Give me Easter. Let's do Easter every week. And the reason being is the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. Amen? So when I, when I talk about the cross of Christ, I get, to, I get to tell people what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. It doesn't get any better than that. Because that's the message that can actually cause them to become children of God themselves. Oh, I, I like talking about creation science. But creation science can't save anybody. It can't. Unless the creation science leads you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eschatology, same thing. You can talk about end times things all day long. You can talk about the rise of Gog and Magog and the Antichrist. You could sit, we could sit here all night, and I have. But unless that leads you to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's of no value. All things point to him. It's not of this world. The world wants brilliant oration. The world wants incredible truths that, you know, somebody can say, well, I have it finally. Somebody comes to you and say they have a new truth, not previously revealed, run. Now they can give you a new way to understand an old truth, but God finished his word. He's given us the full revelation of his word, and we have it. So the truth itself is not a new truth. It's an old truth that he's already told other people. We may have a new way to understand it, but it's not a new truth. Notice verse 8. Which none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known, they would not have crucified the, the Lord of glory. Now think about who he's talking about, actually. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees and King Herod and the Roman rulers, even Pilate himself and the Roman guard, those in the Praetorian guard, those who arrested Jesus, all the characters that we will see as we approach Easter week. Every last one of those people, had they known who Jesus was, if they had believed his unconditional I am statements, because he told them, I'm the son of God. I am, I am. If they had believed it, they would have never put him to death. They would have either not put him to death for one of two reasons. One, because they would have believed in who he was and bowed before him. They would have bowed the knee to King Jesus or they would have said, we're not helping you become Messiah. But the fact of the matter is they missed the message. And Jesus himself is the one that spoke it to most of them. So it gives you a sense of exactly how messed up that world, the world can get in understanding what is simple truth. And so tonight as we wrap this up, the question for us is how deep can we go? How deep can you go? How deep can I go? The answer is you can go as deep as you want to go. You can go as far as you want to go. You can be used of the Lord in as many wonderful ways as you want to be used of the Lord. There is zero limit to the ways that God can use you and the power that God can 
pour into this world through you if you are fully surrendered to his plans. There's no limit. There, there could be the, inside this room right now, there could be the next Billy Graham. Probably have to fight Franklin for that, but... <laughs> but could be. You know, maybe you're going to be the next person that finds out a way to share the same truths that people have been sharing for 2,000 years in such a way that thousands will come to faith in Christ. Maybe God's just going to do something in your life. You, you see, in that sense, as it says in verse 9, but it is written, as it is written, I has not seen or heard, nor have entered into the heart of man. I, I can't even perceive it, is what he's really saying. The things which God has prepared for those who love him. In that sense, in this room, think about it. There is nearly unlimited potential of the power of God working via the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers to accomplish anything and everything that God wills to do. The only question is, will you go that deep? Will you submit yourself to the plans of God in such a way that God can use you because you're willing to be used? You see, the only thing that holds it back is us. It's our reluctance to say yes and amen. It's our reluctance to open our mouths and speak forth truth. There's no reluctance on God's part to do it. There's no lack of power on God's part to do it through the Holy Spirit. And so in that sense, having a deeper understanding of your faith and growing in the deeper things of the Lord is a must-have for us. It's not a should-have. It's not a might-have. It's not something, well, maybe I kind of sort of want it. It's something we should all want. And as much of it as God will absolutely pour out upon our lives. You know, as you get older and you've been in ministry a while, you do start thinking about it. It's like, wow, I'm getting kind of old. And you guys are all going, yeah, that's true. But you start thinking about it. Well, well, what do you want to do, Lord? We're getting near the the end of the race. I can see the other side. And I came to the conclusion, I don't want to rust. I'd much rather go out in a blaze of glory. So I'm not asking God to necessarily slow us down. I'm just saying, Lord, let me finish really well. You see, that's a mindset that says, I want God to do what God wants to do in my life. And that's what I want for you. That's what I want for us as a church. I want God to do absolutely everything that he foreordained before he ever framed the world for us to do. Good works that we should walk in them. Mind-boggling what God could do through us. If every person in this room tonight led 10 people to the Lord, we would not fit in this room next week. You realize that? It's not that big a task. The question is, are we open to being used to the Lord that way? That's why these outreaches and things that we're doing are so important. Is there an opportunity for you to go deep? There an opportunity for you to rest and trust and rely on God's power and not your own.
Now, very often when I'm talking to people about sharing the gospel, oh, I don't know how to do that. Honestly, it's not that hard. You don't have to have half the Bible memorized in order to be able to share the gospel. We actually have little cheat sheet cards that we can give you that have the Romans road on them. If you can read, you're good to go. And if you can't read, we'll get you an audio version. So you're still good to go. You can like have a little earpiece and look kind of like the CIA. Okay. For all of sin and fall short. Okay, got it. For God so loved the world. Got that. You see, we make it into something that it's not because it's not a big deal for God. He wants to use you. He wants to give you the privilege of being used. Don't miss that. It's a privilege to be used of the Lord. But ultimately, God's plan for you means you have to trust him. You've got to step out in faith. You've got to take a little risk, a little holy risk, the right kind of risk. Amen? If you want to be blessed by God, let me tell you something. The best way to be blessed by God is to not hold back. Be obedient and be all in. If you want God's blessings, be obedient to what the Word says and as much as you know about it, and then be all in. Just say, God, I'm for it. If you're for it, I'm for it. It really means living in this world, because you're in this world, amen? Anybody that doesn't live in this world, I don't know where you live, but I think we all live in this world. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe you're an alien and you came to join us tonight, and if you are, thank you for being here. <laughs> but we live in this world. But the crazy thing is, this is not our home. We are destined to actually one day go home. And that home is heaven. So we live for the next in that sense. I'm living in this world, but I'm living for the next world. My life is being spent because I have something that God wants to do that has eternal consequences for it. People that that need the gospel, people that need to grow in Christ, people that God wants to use you, wants to use me, wants to use us, to, to bring people to that place of faith. And so as we think on this passage, the world that we're in, this is not all there is. You tell people that who don't know the Lord, they're like, woo. But if you really believe what the Bible says, This world is not all there is. If you believe it, then you live for the other world. You've got to take this world a little lighter. God's word gives us, in that sense, a, a breathtaking glance of heaven. It's like you look at God's word and go, man, I don't know what it's going to be like, but I know it's going to be awesome. I was reading this little story, and it kind of touched on, on this concept. And he's talking to his mom. He said, look, Mom, the moon's still up. They're looking out the window, and he said, why is it so high? Mom answers, he says, well, God put it up there for many reasons. 
And she started to rattle off scientific facts. You know, it's 280,000 miles away and all those kind of things. It's size. It's one-sixth the size of the, the earth that's up there. And the little boy is still trying to figure it out. Looks at his mom. Did he put it up there so we can't touch it? And the answer to that, I think, is yes. Show higher his ways above our ways. We can't actually know them, but we can look at them. We can see them. We can reach out. I remember the first time I ever grabbed a pair of binoculars and stared at the moon and realized I could actually see the craters on the moon. It's like, wow, that's awesome. That's kind of what happens when we look at God's word. It's like when you look a little closer, you go a little deeper. It's like, wow, that's awesome. So don't be hesitant. Look, stare, be available. Go a little deeper. Amen? Just stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Worship team's going to come back up and lead us in a final song. It's going to be some pastors available after... We finish praying, available for prayer. Something's on your heart. But, man, seek to go a little deeper. Invite somebody out to service this, this next week. We have five of them. Two on Sunday, Good Friday. Two more the following Sunday. We've got Shane and Shane here. It's going to be an awesome week. Amazing week for you to bring somebody to church that doesn't know the Lord. Go a little bit deeper. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you that you do indeed use the foolish things of the world. Lord, you'd use me, us, this church, (laughs) this building that used to be a rocket plant. Lord, made things that kill people. And you turned it into your house, which is the house of prayer. You're that good, Lord. You redeem all things in your time. Father, we thank you for loving us and blessing us, pouring out your spirit upon us. Pray that you'd help us to go deeper, not be satisfied with where we are, but we reach out and try and touch the moon, Lord. And as we do so, we know your hand will meet ours. And so, God, we thank you for reaching down to this earth through Jesus to touch us. Pray that you'd help us to be steadfast and immovable. Lord, abounding in your work, because it's not in vain in you. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen.